Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is science on your radio for another half an hour to, um, I don't know, to, to improve your knowledge for, for the week. Let's just say that. Um, we, have, we have a stellar show here for you today, though. Uh, and first up off the mark is Claire. Claire, what are you going to be telling us about today? Well, today I'm going to be delving into the deep again um, and talking a little bit about the basking shark, which um, showed up on our shores very recently mm-hmm. um, for the first time in a very long time. So, Right. Is it, is it alive and well, this basking shark? Um, well, <laughs> yes and no. Okay. I'll take that as a no. Um, well, we'll find out exactly the state of health of that shark shortly, I'm sure. And Manisha, you're also with us today. What have you got for us? I've got a story on, uh, well, another conservation story, and I'm going to be telling you about some projects to conserve some rhinoceros in South Africa. Excellent. Well, um, they are sorely in need of their conserving. Yes. Yes. And Stu... Good old Stu, what have you got? Uh, well, we, we forgot someone's birthday and I'm going to um, belatedly celebrate the birthday of the Hubble Space Telescope. I expect you to sing happy birthday throughout your story. We'll, we'll all have to sing. All right yeah. then. Okay, well, um, yes, I really look forward to that one. <laughs> okay then, on with the show. Science, the final frontier. These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. There are enough bad news shark stories in the media. Um, And so I was hoping maybe uh, this would be a more hopeful shark story, if there is such a thing. Um, The basking shark, which is what I'm going to talk about today, it's a very rare shark. Mm -hmm. So rare, in fact, that Australia hasn't... um, It hasn't been seen here since 1930. And globally... Um, it's pretty rare as well and is listed as a vulnerable species on the IUCN list. Um, but to give you a bit of background about this ginormous fish, um, as you can probably guess, I'm not an ichthyologist. Mm. I don't study fish. Mm. And I just found out this shark even existed, which is which is strange because this shark is so big. It's, it's, it's actually quite close to um, a whale shark. Okay. How, how big are we talking? Well... It's the second biggest fish on Earth. We're talking like up to eight or nine metres in length. Wow. With a whale shark being about 12 metres. That's like a couple of car lengths. That it would be a couple of car lengths, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, it weighs about seven tonnes. It can weigh about seven tonnes. Okay. Yeah, big shark. Big shark, okay. Very big shark. That's a lot of flake. Ooh, (laughs) it's a lot of flake. (laughs) Oh. That's poor taste, perhaps, Stu. <laughs> no, it tastes really good, apparently. What, the basking shark? The flake. <laughs> okay. Um, but, anyway. But before before you conjure images of your 
uh, fish and chip shop battered flake or your giant jaws like megalodon. Yeah, is this is this a dangerous shark? This one. Let me tell you, Chris, it is not a dangerous shark. <laughs> Ah. Um, it's just like a whale shark in that it's a filter feeder, a okay. type of filter feeder. So what does it eat then? Um, so it rams as much ocean into its mouth as possible and filters um, it with these tiny little bristles um, to collect plankton. Mm-hmm. So the plankton that it collects are um, uh, small crustaceans. Yep. Um, copepods, um, okay. which are little invertebrates that live mm-hmm. in the ocean, and fish eggs. That's oh. probably... Yeah, okay, right. mostly what its diet's made up of. Uh, and the sharks are pretty different um, uh, in that it actually has a range. So it's a basking shark. So it can stay on the surface um, of the water, but then it can also go down to depths of about 1,000 metres to try and get enough plankton to feed itself. That is a big range. Yeah. Is, yeah, impressive. Yeah. Now, we don't hear much about this shark in Australia. Comple- compared to the populations in the rest of the world, it's only three have been captured in Australia in the last 160 years. Right. You'd think with such a big shark, we would have captured. You would think, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. Um, last, the last shark that was captured was in Lakes Entrance, actually, so right here in Victoria, okay. um, in 1930. So, so did they yeah. get trapped in the lake, or did they <laughs> the Loch Ness? Because they well, well, some really you know some things question. do get sort of you know they yeah. come in at high tide and then they're stuck in there at low tide and they can't get out mm. again. Yeah, well, um, until last week, um, the lake's entrance shark was the last um, basking shark found in Australia, um, but professional fishermen were out um, fishing in the Bass Strait and accidentally caught a basking shark while they were trawling for other fish. And then they brought it in to the Victorian seaside town of Portland. So maybe that's what happened in um, in Lake Central. That's just in where it was brought in. Maybe yeah. it was just yeah. where it was brought in. Yeah. So unfortunately, it was a case of bycatch from the fishermen, and um, it unfortunately did cost the fish its life. Mm. Um, and when you think that this fish is very rare, very vulnerable, probably very old, because often big things. Yeah, are quite it, old. Yeah. It. It. Um, I think it can live to about 60. So, right. yeah, quite old. And if it's getting so big... So it could, it could even be related to the one they found in Lake Central. <laughs> could have been. Could be some overlap there. You never know. Yeah, you never know. Could be cousins. Yeah. Mm. And if we'd taken tissue samples back in 1930, then we would be able to do a genetic analysis and find out that sort of thing. Maybe maybe there's a jar of formaldehyde somewhere with... I just, think, shark in I just think the people <laughs> in 1930 are letting us down. They are. Um, I'm not impressed. <laughs> they should have been thinking ahead. They, they should have been, been thinking ahead to 2015. Yeah, that's right. Portland. Yep. Yeah. So, so where is a basking shark normally found if it's not normally found in Australia? Um, in the Northern Hemisphere, around, actually around Canada. Woohoo! Manisha, your hometown. Right. Country. Home country. <laughs> <laughs> um, so these fishermen who did find the shark... Yep. Uh, as with a lot of bycatch, um, it just gets thrown back into the ocean or gets wasted. Um, or with sharks, um, what can end up happening is you get a lot of, um, they just take the fins off the shark and then they sell the fins on oh, for right. illegal shark finning. And with a basking shark, because the fins are so big, this can uh, be extremely lucrative. So up to $25,000 for these shark's fins. Wow. I know. Yeah, it's like so, a rhino horn, really. Yeah, it's, it's like a rhino horn. Yeah. 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 More on that later. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but the fishermen actually got in touch with the Melbourne Museum 
Victoria's own natural history museum um, and donated the shark to the collection. So this is the first basking shark in the natural history museum. And now ichthyologists, real ichthyologists, um, can use the tissue samples to look at genetic relationships between this shark and the Northern Hemisphere sharks. They can look at the stomach contents to see what the shark's been eating, Mm -hmm. um, as well as cartilage and vertebrae to study the shark's life history. And apparently, shark researchers all over the world are just banging down their doors, the doors of the Melbourne Museum. And and they're basking in the glory. (laughs) And they're basking in the glory of this shark to try and get samples and um, get, you know, get on board with the basking shark. Okay. Well, if I I can throw in my ill-informed, half-formed, remembered facts about basking sharks, the only thing I can remember about them is that um, I believe they're sometimes mistaken for sea monsters because they um, they have this big mouth, which is a filter-feeding thing, and when they decay, the carcasses decay, that kind of falls off, and you just live with this weird, misshapen head and this long, sinuous body. And so it's believed that a lot of... It would be terrifying to find, because you wouldn't know. You probably... wouldn't know because (laughs) they're so rare. Yeah, that's right. Oh. So, yeah, um, don't it, don't be afraid of them, though, because they are quite gentle, unless you're a plankton. Unless you're a plankton, you've got nothing to worry about. a story um, that I picked up from my Facebook newsfeed. I saw this really bizarre photo of a rhinoceros with a pink horn. Clearly the photo had been digitally altered. However, the picture um, linked to this really interesting story. And the story was related to an organization called the Rhino Rescue Project. As the name suggests, the organization is working working to conserve rhinoceros species, particularly from the threat of poachers. Rhinoceros horn is thought to have medicinal and aphrodisiac qualities in some Asian countries, and due to this, their demand is quite high, and they're actually really rare. So poachers can actually earn a fair bit of money um, by selling these horns off. Uh, some spo- some poachers have earned up to $200,000 per horn. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I can imagine as the um, the rhinos get more rare that they the price goes the up. The price as just well. goes up and up and up. Yeah. yeah. So um, because of all this poaching, rhinoceros species are actually facing um, a pretty high extinction risk. Yeah. Mm. So there, the organization Rhino Rescue Project is working on a way to devalue the rhinoceros horn, mm. and I guess one way would be to make them more popular. But they're working on they're working on this way to discolor 
the rhinoceros horn and also make it really poisonous for any human that oh. comes into contact with them. Yeah. So are the rhino horns valuable because they're, um, they're just used in medicine or are there other uses? I think that some, like, there's a bit of a market f to have them as, like, an artifact, mm. but mostly they're used in these medicines and, yeah, mm. just ground up to... Yeah. And or, then, or should we say supposed medicines because there's no evidence they actually do anything. They're doing anything, yeah, yeah fair enough. Yeah, so mostly they're ground up and people mm. are ingesting them. Um, but anyways, back to the work that the Rhino Rescue Project is doing. They're a organization that works out of South Africa, and they have come up with a way to infuse rhinoceros horns with an ectoparasiticide and pink dye. So the ectoparasiticide is actually, it's a anti-parasite chemical, and it's not harmful to the rhinoceros, but it's really harmful to any human that comes in contact with it, and this contact doesn't just have to be by ingesting it. So if you have it, you'll you'll be you'll be symptomatic of really violent episodes of nausea and vomiting and diarrhea. But otherwise, even just handling it, you can mm -hmm. be pretty symptomatic of this. And these um, these symptoms aren't just temporary; they can be pretty permanent and life threatening. Um, and then the dye does a really good job of discoloring the horns and making them pretty much useless mm -hmm. in the market. Um, the poison, the poisoning actually, it involves tranquilizing the rhinoceroses and then drilling holes into their um, into their horns, and injecting the poison and the dye at really high pressures. So some people have been pretty concerned with these methods, but to work with such a large animal, it mm -hmm. seems pretty fair practice. Uh, the poison is meant to deter poachers and consumers alike. Since horns are made of keratin and they grow much like our own hair, the poisoning is not a permanent treatment and typically the horns will only remain poisoned for about four years. So the, the rhino itself will, won't ingest poison from the, the No, horn, no. So they're, they're not influenced. And I don't think that the poison works in the same way for the rhinoceros just okay. because of different pathways. So it's really toxic to humans, but not so toxic to the animal world. Right. So it's sort of like having poisonous fingernails. Or poisonous hair. Yeah. yeah. Poisonous hair. And yeah, poisonous get, fingernails. They'll is have, to get their, uh, have to get their roots redone every four years. <laughs> yeah, otherwise they'll just have this white peeking out from their pink, and that's just embarrassing, really. I just love the fact that we have these enormous animals with these big sharp horns, and now they're going to be poisonous sharp horns on the front of them as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, don't mess with a rhino. Don't mess with a rhino. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you wonder what about the, uh, like the health of the rangers in these... Um, national parks as well, but I'm mm. sure, I'm sure they're not coming in contact with the rhinoceros in a way that they're going to mm. put themselves into threatening situations. Do you think the pink is also a way to show that it has been poisoned? Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to the poachers wouldn't no. be able to see that it was poisoned. Or yeah, actually, that um, that's really interesting. The poisons or the pink dye even is on the inside, so you can actually see it visibly. Oh. So these photos that I saw were clearly, wow. they were digitally altered. And basically, the um, the organization has said that it's not so much about poisoning every rhinoceros and really putting that fear or that out there, but they want to put that fear in the consumer and in the mm -hmm. poachers um, mm -hmm. that any rhinoceros that they come across could potentially be poisoned. And so hopefully by doing that, it will really deter the practice and really kill the market. Right. So that's really... That's it's really clever. Yeah, that is really clever, isn't it? Mm. Um, one of the big issues that the 
project um, is faced with is that the poachers then, in response, are getting really angry. And in retaliation, they're going through these massive killing sprees in other parts of these national parks. So um, all of like this work is out of Johannesburg. And then so there's parts of national parks um, in South Africa that are then just faced with massive killing frenzies. So there's a bit of retaliation from the poachers that way, and then it puts the rangers and um, the people involved in their lives in danger as well. And then another big issue or another political issue is that the there are some government officials that want to legalize and regulate the trade so that the communities can profit. So it's really, yeah, it's turned into this really polarized political thing mm. and it's really hard for the organization to wade through all those political murky waters yeah um and use such a polarizing tactic and still be really effective so yeah it's interesting it'll be interesting to see if this project has any um reflection on the poaching rates and on the death rates and yeah, yeah. i mentioned there's like a few different things that people are trying to to protect the rhinos when I mean, i've seen pictures of armed guards surrounding individual rhinos and, and that sort of thing. But that thing gets in some of the, the species, yeah. subspecies where they're really limited in numbers, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's it's really, um, there's some, there's actually a few organizations that um, help out with the the rangers and things like that mm-hmm. because people really do put their life on the lines for these animals. And yeah. then where the poachers then try to go through the people to get to the animals, their families and things like that left behind as well. So it's it's actually quite a very, like it's really difficult and there's another organization called the thin green line and they really support the the families and wives and children of poachers that have died protecting and saving animals so yeah it's all really scary and as i was reading this i was thankful for the crazy privileged life that i live and the fact that my big my biggest uh, threat is or my biggest problem today was the cold melbourne weather anyways if you want to um learn more about this uh, there's more information of the project on rhinorescueproject.org. Excellent. And we'll put that link up on our Facebook as well. Now, it's embarrassing when you forget someone's birthday, and we did forget, well, it's kind of an important birthday, and we forgot to mention it on Lost in Science, um, though we probably didn't hear any complaints, because it's pretty hard to hear complaints from Orbit, and the uh, the birthday in particular, I don't think the Hubble Space Telescope is capable of complaining itself. Um, but the Hubble Space Telescope celebrated its 25th year in orbit on wow. the 24th of April 2015. Oh, congratulations, yeah. Hubble, yeah. And they put it up there in 1990, which makes me feel old because I remember them launching that mission. 
It's um, older than me. Just putting that out there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I was in high school when that was launched. Um, uh, but it, if anyone does remember that going up, it wasn't actually particularly operational until um, the end of 1993. Yeah, I think they had to send up like corrective lenses or something to the name. Like, yeah, basically... Um, glasses for the telescope. Yeah. Yeah, they, <laughs> uh, they figured out um, that uh, some equipment needed replacing and the optics needed repairing uh, because the original optical mirror was ground to the wrong shape. They got it wrong by... And, you know, it's pretty easy to get it wrong by this much. They got it wrong by 2.2 micrometers, which is really not very much. But mm. when you're taking pictures of things a really, really long way away, yep. it makes a huge difference. And when, you're, when, you know, your job is to make the best lens in the world and you get it wrong, you know. You get fired. That's right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, you know, Perk and Elmer were they, – they started grinding this in um, 1979, Wow! So it Whoa. was. It was, took them a long time to get this stuff all together to build a telescope and then get it up in space. And, still got it wrong. and then they messed they up. They still yeah. got it wrong. Well um, so yeah, when when you're taking long distance photographs, uh, they needed to make corrections. And even though Kodak, who make cameras, had um, had uh, a backup mirror, mm-hmm. they they had you know they'd gone oh well just in case. Our rivals in the industry get it wrong. We'll make one just in case. Um, but obviously, the uh, the cost of getting a a backup mirror into mm. space and replacing it in space was ridiculous. And the idea of bringing it back to Earth and then doing it is they just sort of went, oh well, whatever. So, so they, on, if, it, if it's Kodak, where do you try to take pictures? A little thing slide out, and someone has to go up and collect it, <laughs> shake it around. <laughs> no, it's a Polaroid. Oh. it's a Polaroid. Um, no, 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 yeah, no. Kodak, uh, Kodak had the backup mirror, but they they couldn't they couldn't get it up there. Um, so they gave the telescope, as you said, the equivalent of corrective lenses. Um, they went up and uh, replaced some of the instruments on board the Hubble and uh, some of the hardware, and that would counteract the distorting effects of the mirror. Okay. So, so NASA declared the operation a success in January. 1994. So that was, you know, quite a while after it actually got into space. Um, and obviously the Hubble's been taking amazing photos of the universe since then. Um, and not only in the visible spectrum, because the telescope itself is fitted with numerous sensors in multiple radiation spectra. <clears throat> and most of the images we see from the telescope are actually composite images um, made up of a whole bunch of different data sets right. so that we can actually figure out what we're seeing. And artificially coloured and that sort yeah, of Yeah, they're often yeah. artificially coloured um, to, to make them look cool. Or um, to highlight features, I think we've Yeah, 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 that's right. To <laughs> for highlight, science. To highlight purposes, the features yes. for science, not just to sell posters no. in uh, bong shops. Um, <laughs> but a little bit of that as well. A little right? bit of that as well. Hey, it all, it all helps the space program. You need program. to get their money it, yeah. somewhere. Yeah. Um, so the, the the telescope itself is named after Edwin Hubble, who uh, was an astronomer who was born a really long time ago. He was born in 1899, but he died in the mid-50s. Uh, he is credited with the discovery that the universe is expanding um, mm. based on observations of how fast distant galaxies are moving. 
So he's the guy who was credited with mm. this. Well, the Hubble constant, which is measures the expansion of the universe, is named after him. Yeah, that's course. right. Yeah. Even yeah. though even though some other scientists actually reported that earlier, mm. they just weren't as high profile as him, apparently. Um, but you know, that's science for you. There's always people publishing things, and it, it depends how good your press agents are as to who picks it up. Um, <laughs> Now, one of the great things I think about the Hubble telescope is that anyone, you or me or anyone listening to the show, can apply to book time and get the Hubble to look at stuff in space. What? It's true. It's true. There is a program that anyone can apply to have time booked on the Hubble to take photographs. Now, of course, um, being that there's only one telescope and there are 7 billion people on the planet, the the number of... um, the number of successful applications are quite limited, but about 20% of applications are granted. So that's one in wow. five. That's very high. That's pretty good. How many How many kids are emailing them saying, can you take a picture of Uranus? <laughs> <laughs> As if we don't have enough yeah. pictures. Um, but, uh, yeah, so 20% of applications, I assume this is not individual. So, you know, right. people would, you know, a whole class of kids or something like that. Okay, a whole yeah, school yeah, yeah. would probably be putting in for that sort of stuff. Um, and because the Hubble was launched with 1990 technology, uh, they've had multiple servicing missions to update the onboard hardware, and this will, well, presumably continue until, uh, well, for the effective life of the telescope. Now, originally when they launched it, the idea was that they were going to zoom up there in one of their multiple uh, space shuttles, because <laughs> the NASA project, and just... You know, fold it all back up, pop it back in the uh, cargo bay and zoom it back down to Earth where they'd keep it in the Smithsonian Institute right. so everyone could have a look at it. Use the Canadian arm perhaps to pull it in. They could. The yeah. Canada arm. The Canada arm. The Canada arm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, obviously, they can't do that anymore because we yeah. don't have – well, they don't have any space shuttles um, and nobody that we know of has any space shuttles. Is that a problem though? I mean, can't it just stay up there or is it in well, the way Well, the thing is it's in a low Earth orbit, so okay. it is – it's got, you know, solar drag and mm. gravity acting on it. So uh, the likelihood is that it will re-enter the atmosphere sometime between 2030 and 2040. Wow. That would be terrifying. So it, it's, it's, it's really, it really hasn't got... a telescope fall at your head. Yeah. With a, <laughs> with a huge mirror. <laughs> it's, it's happened before. It also makes me feel old. I remember when Skylab oh, came yeah, crashing that, yes. to Earth. Um, uh, but... Yeah, so it hasn't really got, you know, it's it's got a, a finite lifespan. Um, there's a proposed partial replacement. The James Webb Telescope is intended mm-hmm. to be, re- that's going to be placed at a Lagrange point, which is further away from Earth and the Moon so that it doesn't get sort of dragged down. Yeah, it's kind of a stationary point between the between the orbits, so it's, yeah. Yeah, so it, it should, and it also will remove a lot of interference, which yeah. even though the Hubble gets amazing photos of deep space and looks far back billions of years in time, it still gets interference because of how close it is to the Earth. <clears throat> um, so the uh, the James Webb telescope mm-hmm. will will have less interference. It'll still have some. I mean, there's no there's no perfect location. Um, but it's actually going to be mainly an infrared telescope. Yeah, I was, I was wondering about that. So it's not, it's not as much in the visible spectrum and the ultraviolet as the Hubble, which is based in those And not spectra. so much the pretty pictures it's aimed at. Well, they can they can colorize them and, yeah. and you know soup them up for uh, for poster uh, production if they really need to. Mm. <laughs> um, but look, I just thought it was it was timely to wish the Hubble Telescope a happy birthday 
uh, and hope that the next 25 years can show us as much about the universe as the first 25. And, well, hopefully more than the first three. Anyway. <laughs> mm. um, actually, I think I read something around the birthday of the Mars rover, and apparently oh, okay. it's programmed to uh, sing happy birthday to itself. So it plays out happy birthday. That's a lonely That's more depressing than not telling it that it so had a at least, So I'm just saying if the Hubble is going to feel really left out, at least it's not singing happy birthday to itself. That's so true. Happy birthday, yeah, Hubble. That's true. Okay. It gets, it gets enough visitors. Be thankful visitors. for that. Yeah. Yes, a little shout out to the lonely robots who sing that <laughs> solar system. Yeah. Okay, that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. You have heard a lot today. You've heard about the basking shark. The um, it's not asking for trouble. It's uh, it's uh, basking for trouble. I don't know. And we have pink pink horned rhinos. Hopefully, the pink horns will save the rhinos. And it's a happy birthday to to Hubble up there doing his job for 25 years. Um, speaking of space, um, you should remember that over the next week, I believe, um, July the 14th, the New Horizons spacecraft will have its flyby of Pluto. So watch out for that one. Um, exciting pictures of Pluto and its moons coming up. Meanwhile, Lost in Science, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia the Community Radio Network with the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. Please email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or look us up on Twitter or find us on Facebook where I believe we're called Lost in Science on 3CR or you can listen to us on the radio when, once again, same time next week, uh, Claire, Manisha, Stu and Chris will get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.